Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eddie Zant, the medical director and on-site physician at Hyperbaric Medicine, Inc. Dr. Zant is a Defeat Autism Now trained physician and is board certified in both hyperbaric medicine and anesthesiology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Zant. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are so welcome. So I always like to start from the beginning. Um, can you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Where'd you grow up, and did you always want to be a doctor? Well, I grew up in Valdosta, Georgia, in South Georgia. Uh, no, I, I never even thought about being a doctor until <laughs> maybe when I was in college. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I, the, I, the way I got involved with this, I... I grew up in South Georgia back in the early part of the whatever. And in the summertime, there wasn't much to do. So my parents sent me off to summer camp when I was about seven years old in North Georgia, Athens, where I camp. And I, I went there until my sophomore year of college. As you get older, you get on the staff. And the last two years as supervisor, I was assigned to the infirmary. So I worked with the registered nurse having sick call and the closest doctor was an hour away, and if someone was really sick, then my job was to take them down to the emergency room and stuff like that. So that, that interests me. I enjoyed doing that, and uh, I applied to medical school, and I got accepted, and that's where I went, Yeah. Wow. Oh, what an interesting story. Um, now, you served as a captain in the United States Army Medical Corps during Vietnam conflict. Can you tell us about that time and looking back how that might have shaped your trajectory? Correct. I, I was in the United States Army from July 69 to June of 71. Uh, it was during the Vietnam War. I was not stationed in Vietnam. I was supposed to go there, but uh, I was originally assigned to Germany. And when I went to Fort Sam Houston, a little introductory school for people who never had military experience mm -hmm. for doctors, veterinarians, and dentists, they called me in and told me they were going to have to reassign me because the unit going to Germany was delayed indefinitely. So I said, fine. And they, the Army was good to me. I enjoyed my career in the Army. Anyway, they gave me a list of seven places that I could choose from. I was really surprised because the Vietnam War was going hot and heavy. And one of them was up in Northern California at a little small Army base. And the lady said, I think the guy down the hall was stationed there one time. Go talk to him. And I did. And he said it was a great place. It was up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and it was an ammunition dump. They had they worked on nuclear warheads there that were flown in from all over the country. So I went there for one year, knowing that you know my next stop would be Vietnam. So, but uh, they they kept me there for the second year. The hospital it was a small hospital, seven beds, three docs, a dentist, optometrist, pharmacy, and the hospital commander got sick. And I was the uh, captain, date of rank or whatever. They made me the deputy commander, so I sort of took over. And uh, it worked out, and I stayed there two years, and it was a great experience. Wow. Um, and then I, I think I got ahead of myself a little bit. How did you um, decide to get into the Army? 
the Army decided that. <laughs> okay, you're drafted. When I, yeah, that's correct. When I finished my internship back then, all physicians had to go in the military. Oh, wow. And I, you know, so I looked around and everything was filled, you know, and the Army said, hey, we'll take you. Uh-huh. I knew I had to go, and that was fine. It was, I had no military connection. My father was in the National Guard in World War II, but, you know, not really much Army there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the Army said, come on out, we'll be happy to take you. It was a two-year obligation, but I just finished my internship at, in Miami, Florida at uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. And that was in anesthesiology? No, no, I didn't do anesthesia until I got out of the Army. Okay. I, I, did, I finished my internship in 69, and I went directly in the Army for two years. Mm-hmm. And then when I got out, uh, a friend of mine was in general practice up in southwest Georgia. I did that for a year, and we decided that a little too small place. For, we didn't want to live there the you know, rest of our life, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I applied to the University of Florida in Gainesville for an OB, uh um, a fellowship, an anesthesia thing. I, my internship was OBGYN, but my uh, fellowship was in anesthesia. And I went down there and finished that. And then when I finished that program, then we moved up here to Fort Walton in 1974. Okay, okay. And then in 1975, after the Vietnam conflict, you were working as an anesthesiologist in the Fort Walton Beach area um, when an Indo-Chinese refugee camp was established here at Eglin Air Force Base. Um, what was your involvement with the camp, and can you tell us the story of Lon? Yeah, sure. Um, I was doing anesthesia. You know, we worked long hours, but if you worked the, the day before, night before, you got off at noon, you know, the next day. So uh, the, I'm not sure exactly how it came about. But anyway, the, the local medical society sent out a bulletin that the military, they, they were uh, they were. Uh, between ten and 12,000 Vietnamese refugees out at Eglin Air Force Base here. And they need a little help with their medical services, sick call, and stuff like that. And would anyone volunteer? And I said, sure. So I, and I did. And I'd go out there two afternoons and into the early evenings, whatever, and help with sick call. And uh, it, it was, uh, they set up like a tent city. It was one of the auxiliary airfields, which Eglin has many of them. And um, anyway, I was out there one evening late, ready to go home, and a lady from Catholic Social Services came over and said, Dr. Sam, I want to ask you a favor. I said, sure, what's that? She said, well, you know, we have, you know, 12,000 refugees here uh, from the Vietnam, Vietnam, and we have um, a little girl, I think Lon was around 12, I'm not, give or take a year, 12 years old, mm-hmm. said, we have a 12-year-old a young Vietnamese girl that has no family and we need a foster home for her, and we don't have a foster home. We'll have one in about two or three weeks. Would you and your wife be interested in, in you know, taking care of her for a couple of weeks? So I said, I'm sure we will, but let me check with my wife and kids, and I'll let you know. So I went home, and we talked about it. My kids were about that day. They were thrilled to death. My wife said, that's fine. So I went back out there a couple of days later, and she came over, and I said, sure, we'll do that. I said, well, we'll bring her over in a couple of days, and probably, you know, three weeks probably. So I said, fine. So I was at work, when they brought Lon over to the house. My wife was there, and Margie said that Lon got out of the car. She had a little brown bag, and that was her total possession. That's all she had. Wow. So anyway, but Lon spoke some English. She was, you know, she was not really fluent. You could certainly understand her English. So anyway, she came for three weeks, and I think Lon stayed for 12 years. 
So we just we just kind of you know Catholic Social Service had dropped her dropped her off and not to be ugly but we never heard from them again oh and, which is fine you know we didn't ask for any money we just raised her as our kid yeah. and she stayed through college she graduated from college and she wanted to move out to California and she applied out there uh, she got a job at one of the UC Davis or one of those University of California places as a guidance counselor. Because there were a lot of Vietnamese people out there, and of course she was fluent in the language. Well, she has worked herself herself up to being a full professor now, so she's she's done very well. And you know, we we see each other about every couple of years. She'll come in, and her daughter just graduated from physical therapy school with a, a doctorate degree. So she she's one of my kids, and um, we we keep in touch all the time. Yeah, that is such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, sure. now, now back to, um, your, your board certification in anesthesiology. Um, what per, what prompted you to pursue a second board certification in hyperbaric medicine? And what exactly is hyperbaric medicine? Well, let me, let me go back to anesthesia first. When, you know, when I left that little small town up in Georgia, I, I, I like to see patients take care of them and hopefully they'll get well. And, and I'm not, really into long-term care. I mean, I can do that, but it's just something I didn't bring up, wasn't brought up doing. And in anesthesia, you know, you see someone, you put them to sleep, wake them up, check on them a couple of weeks, and that's, that's, and so I said, I think I would like that. So I got accepted in the University of Florida anesthesia program, went down there, it was a two-year program then, and I met my anesthesia partner, Dr. Leslie Osteen. He was a student. Just, I mean, we were we were both MDs, but we were you know, anesthesia residents. And so anyway, we became friends. And his brother was up here in Fort Walton as an oral surgeon. And the hospital was opening. The new hospital was opening in 1974, I believe it was. So Les and I came up here as the first two anesthesiologists. And I did that, gosh, I think for about 28 years. And I enjoyed that. It was a good career. But then I decided, yeah, maybe I'd like to do something else. And one of my friend's wife needed hyperbaric therapy for a radiation-induced problem, cancer therapy. And she had to go all the way to Miami to get her treatment. And my friend said, why don't you start a hyperbaric chamber up here? So I looked into it. I said, eh, maybe so. (laughs) So I did. And we started with one location and one chamber in Fort Walton, and now we have two locations and six chambers. Yeah. Wow. And and what year did you start that hyperbaric medicine? Oh, uh, it was eighteen years ago. What okay. two thousand four, something like that. Wow. And so, and so there was no other treatment facility like that in the area. It was all the way. Uh, well, Pensacola had some chambers, mm-hmm. um, and Panama City, but nothing in between. Okay, now hyperbaric medicine, some people might not know um, exactly what that is. So can you tell us about what it is and what does it treat and how does it work? Okay, most people, if you think of divers that get the bins, they, you know, they put them in a chamber. Well, that's a hyperbaric chamber. We do not treat divers. We could, but we don't. And hyperbaric chamber, they're called, ours are monoplace. We treat one person in, in one chamber at a time. They're multiplace, but we don't do that. In a chamber, we can raise the atmospheric pressure, and we it's an oxygen-rich environment, and we can change someone's blood oxygen level, usually around 100 or so. Most of the time, we can get it up to 1,500, 2,000. 
And it's the high oxygen level that creates usually the repairs that we're looking for. The majority of our patients are uh, wound care, ulceration, diabetic ulcers, traumatic ulcers. Uh, we have we do a lot of radiation uh, issues. Uh, patients patient with cancer will get radiation therapy. And it, it's just, it happens. There's nothing wrong with the radiation, but it, radiation destroys uh, cancer cells, but it also destroys small blood vessels, capillaries. And if you destroy too many of those, then you'll get an area that doesn't have enough blood flow, but it comes to ischemic, get ulcerated pain. And hyperbaric is one of the few things that will regenerate uh, the blood supply in a radiated field. Medicare pays for it, and they don't pay for things that don't work. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. And, okay, I'm, the, the TBI stuff and PTSD, that just sort of happened that, oh, I guess around 2006, somewhere around in the year, of the uh, command surgeon at Hurled Air Force Base, Special Forces, uh, Dr. Jim Wright, uh, he's an MD, but he's a colonel, special. He was a command surgeon out there. We became friends. He referred me some patients, and these were civilian patients. And there was an article in the paper about two of his special forces guys that were getting purple hearts. They were blown up in a roadside bomb in Iraq. Uh, and said they still had issues and cognitive issues and stuff like that. And I read it, and Colonel Wright and I had talked about treating some traumatic brain injuries, but we never, we didn't have any. So I called Colonel Wright and asked him if he'd read the paper. He said, no. I said, a couple of you guys in there, read it, call me back. He did a couple of hours. He said, you want to treat them? I said, sure. And they were both being uh, medically boarded out for TBI. Uh, and uh, we treated them in their medical board. Uh, Discharge boards were canceled. One went on to finish his enlistment, and the other one, last time I heard, he was still in the Air Force. I, I try to keep up with most of my military guys and, and ladies, but I do lose track. And uh, so anyway, those were the first two, and then Colonel Wright started referring me more, and then word sort of gets out. And for the first, oh gosh, 15 years probably, the military was not paying for hyperbaric. The VA was not paying for it. So most of that was done on my nickel, which is fine. I could afford to do that. Um, and it was very rewarding. I mean, these people have a new life, you know, and it was, it was very, it was nice. So we I probably treated two, 300 uh, uh, veterans with TBI, PTSD. And fortunately, uh, the 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 people in charge and whatever, particularly in the state of Florida, uh, have realized that hey, you know, uh, not to criticize anybody, but before usually uh, TBIs treated PTSD with pills. They got a pill for everything: sleep, depression, anxiety, headaches, stuff like that. And these guys were coming in for hyperbaric, and they'd have a handful of pills. And they, I, I probably over half of them would say that they felt like zombies. They just couldn't function because of all the medication. And most of them, when we completed their treatments, uh, they were taking maybe one pill, two at the most. So um, anyway, so but now it, the the VA and I'm going to say the state of Florida is taking kind of the lead, and I'm sure other states may be doing it too. But I know Governor DeSantis. Um, State Senator Tom Wright, uh, State Representative uh, General uh, Pat Maney are very instrumental in getting uh, these uh, TBI veterans of Florida treated. Uh, two people very interested there in the Florida Department of Veteran Affairs, uh, 
Commander Dennis Baker and Major Haynes. Uh, and they're both been president of Florida uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. And um, Major Haynes is really a personal friend. He's in his mid-90s. He joined the Marine Corps when he was 15, lied about his age, served <laughs> in all, all, all the wars, and was an enlisted guy for half his career. And then he became uh, an officer and retired as a major and he's been a, he's been a warrior for over 80 years now, Major Haynes. He's a very dear friend. Yes. And uh, so there are a lot of people. It's still a lot of work to be done. The state of Florida gave me a grant last year. They gave me one this year. This year, I'm uh, enough funding for 11 veterans. Last year, it was five. And they all get well. They all get well. And so hopefully, if those people are contacted, maybe they'll, they're, they're, they're really trying, you know, get funds appropriated from the Florida legislature. And, uh, that's what it's all about. And there are some military organizations. I know the Green Beret Society, uh, have paid for a couple of guys, uh, that I treated, uh, with, uh, hyperbarics. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, and as you know, um, Pete, PTSD and TBI are quite prevalent in the EOD community, along with a devastatingly high suicide rate. So can you tell us about HBOT's um, role in prevention of suicide among veterans? Well, yeah, the, the veteran suicide rate's been running about, with PTSD, TBI, about 6,000 a year. That's, that's really high. Um, the, 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 the veterans that I see, probably 80% of them are males, 20% females, and the females, it's really interesting. They were not combatants, but they were nurses, combat medics, things like that. Mm-hmm. And just the exposure to the trauma of war, the deaths of war, um, that can uh, give, cause the brain to have be impaired and have a quote, wound that was responsible for their uh, symptoms of anxiety, depression, insomnia, panic attack, and all those things. So, um, hyperbaric, uh, is uh, does a lot of stuff, but it's it's uh, anti-inflammatory. Uh, the PTSD, the there's, the brain has been wounded, um, and the, the hyperbaric. The, the term we use is called really neuroplasticity. The hyperbaric will the the brain. Usually, the brain is not the neurons. They're really not dead. They're just injured. We call them idling neurons. They're just sitting there, not functioning. And hyperbaric regenerates stem cells. Sometimes the blood supply to the nerves and neurons are impaired. The capillaries, the small blood vessels that regenerate those and, um, and, and the stem cells. And usually, you know, we treat them with 40 treatments. There are some protocols coming out now with more. We've been very successful with our protocol of 40 treatments at 1.5 atmospheres, which is 17 feet of pressure. And uh, 99% of them just do great. And it, it's, a, it's quote, a permanent cure. It's not something they have to, I think maybe one or two people have come back for additional treatments, touch-ups. But it, for most of them, and, and like I say, we've been doing this 18 years, so we got pretty good follow-up. Right. Now, I want, to give, I want to give a plug to a friend of mine. I'm not the only one that does this in the mm-hmm. state of Florida. I have a friend down in uh Oh, where does Ray live? Ray lives down in uh, South Florida at Delray Beach, Ray Crowley Physical Therapy. And Ray's a Marine. He was in Vietnam. He's been through all this. He knows what's going on. He and I both uh, are getting grants from the state of Florida. And something really nice happened in 2019. Governor DeSantis 
selected Ray and I for induction in the Florida Veterans Hall of Fame for our work with impaired veterans because, you know, we weren't getting paid for it. We were donating our time. So things are starting to happen, and, and it's good. It's a good thing. Hopefully we can get funding to treat more. Um, and that's where, and ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> I got one. So I, I imagine that a good number of our listeners may be interested in, in trying out this therapy. Um, can you talk about the availability of hyperbaric, um, treatment nationally? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Here's the deal on hyperbaric. Okay. A lot of hospitals have hyperbaric chambers, uh, Pensacola, Panama City, but the hospital, the, there are only certain things that are reimbursable. Medicare sets the guidelines for what gets paid for. There are 14 conditions that get paid for. The most common are radiation complications for cancer therapy and for uh, ulcerations, diabetic ulcers, traumatic ulcerations, things like that. The only neurological condition that is paid for are divers who get the bins. So if you have a traumatic brain injury, you got a PTSD or a stroke, those are not covered conditions. And hospital, I don't know whether it's their guidelines or financial or what, they, they won't treat them. So I, I do have a friend that works in Atlanta at a hospital. He's uh, in charge of their hyperbaric unit. And he said occasionally they will do what is called off-label. That means it's not covered by insurance. But the fee they charge is 25 times higher than the fee we, we would charge if we charge a fee at all. So it's really not readily available. I mean, they, because the hospital, they're not interested to do it because it's not a high-ticket item. I mean, they're not ugly or anything like that. It's just business. So, uh, you know, we're trying to get funding there, a few freestanding facilities around the country, right out here in Florida. Uh, to treat more because I mean I could make a whole career out of this because it's very rewarding yeah right, yeah so for any EOD techs that might be suffering from TBR PTSD who are interested um, what would your recommendation be and are you accepting new patients oh I take patients all the time we, we just work we if you know we do what we got to do now I'll be happy to talk with uh, anyone that wants to call me, you know, and we can try to work out some funding. The state of Florida did pay for 11 veterans this year for me to treat. Um, Within 24 hours, they were filled because I had a list of people waiting to be treated. So, and you know, I could could probably take, I don't know, as many as they want to send. So if there's any questions about it, uh, I'd be happy to talk with them, you know, and and try to find some funding or maybe just treat them. Let me add one more thing, though. The one advantage that we have here, it's really nice that I, I think I mentioned to you, uh, the Fisher House, that's a foundation that builds places on military reservations to house families and patients that are receiving medical care uh, from when they come from a distance. And either civilian or military medical care, it doesn't matter. So we have a Fisher House at Eglin Air Force Base. They're terrific. I, I probably, I think I've got two patients out there now staying. And you know, 40 treatments, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at eight weeks worth of therapy. Mm-hmm. And if you have to pay for lodging and all that stuff, that, that's almost prohibitive. So the Fisher House, they're wonderful people. It's totally free. It's from veterans receiving medical care. Uh, they have space for families, you know, limited, but there is space for spouses, maybe one child or so. Mm-hmm. And so most of my patients, a lot of them, I have people come from 
gosh, we're uh, right now, one guy's down from uh, North Georgia, and the other one is coming over from Tallahassee, uh, and, and they're staying at the Fisher House, and that's, and so that's just kind of a plus for uh, the veterans, so, because otherwise, You'd pay three or four hundred dollars a night for that room uh, on the beach here. Oh, you would, you would. And actually, I've heard great things about the Fisher House. Somebody said it's like a four-star hotel. Oh, it is. The people are wonderful. Yeah, and you know, you you can take your. uh, They have a little kitchen there. You can cook a little bit. Uh, Volunteer groups come in. I I don't know, two or three nights a week, and, and prepare dinner for everyone. And it's it's on you know it's secure it's on the base you know and yeah. so but anyway so most of my if the patients are not local here uh, then the Fisher House has always been great about accepting them to stay there and you know eight weeks there they have no problem with that at all that is fantastic so um, another interesting fact about you Doctor Zant in 2016 the state of Florida voted in favor of a constitutional amendment to allow medical marijuana. What made you decide to get your license, and how do you see this helping your patients? <laughs> All right. Medical marijuana. I, I'm an old guy. When I was in high school, we didn't have marijuana. It, I, it just wasn't there. My brother and I, I kid about it. You know, we, my daddy drank a beer every now and then smoked a cigarette, and we, we'd snitch those, and he didn't have any marijuana. We could snitch. So anyway... <laughs> So I grew up, and I, I really wasn't exposed to marijuana. In the military, medical school, and, you know, in the military, there were people smoking marijuana, the truth, but the doctors, they asked us not to, and I, I respect that. So I, I really didn't know a lot about marijuana. Then Florida started talking about legalizing it, I don't know, what, three or four years ago? And I'm thinking, man, that, that's kind of interesting. You know, maybe I'd like to do that. So the hyperbaric facilities I have Fort Wall and Destin we do anywhere 15 to 18 patients a day and I said let me go ask my patients what they think about that heck I think I talked to 15 of them and 12 of them were smoking marijuana every day either for anxiety or pain or whatever and I said why didn't you tell me and they said oh you took us out of your practice and I said no I don't care so that made me decide hey maybe I should do this and I did it, and I got a lot of patients. I love my marijuana patients because they all get better. They're the nicest people, and the most common things we treat are pain. They're you know they come in here they're on Percocets and uh, hydrocodone, and once two or three maybe a month on uh, marijuana, that they don't they're they're off all of that stuff. And people have a misunderstanding about marijuana. Ninety nine percent of these, but they don't get high. We can treat them at levels. They don't get euphoric. They work. They they have great jobs. They're physicians, dentists, veterinarians. I mean, you name it, we got them all. Okay, and they're very responsible people. So the medical marijuana has been a really good thing, and I've, I've enjoyed my patients. Yeah, that that is so interesting. Um, you clearly have a passion for helping others, and we're so grateful for everything that you've given to help our veteran community. Um, can you tell us about a time when you knew that you were really making a difference with all of this? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I keep up with my veterans. Uh, I, I mean, they're 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 wonderful people. I mean, you know, they'll tell me they're better, and even the marijuana patients when they come in, I have to see them every six months. That's a state regulation, and they say, "Hey, it's just, you know, it's turned my life around as far as anxiety, depression, pain, and things like that." Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my hyperbaric patients. 
with, with PTSD and traumatic brain injury, they, they really have a difficult functioning. They have a lot of cognitive issues, anger management problems. And some of them, one, one guy I remember distinctly, he, he just started, we were sitting in the office, he was waiting for his turn to get in the chamber. And he told me, he said, Doc, man, I got to run out of my car and get something. I said, that's fine. So he went out to his car and I watched him. He went to a tree beside his car and he started digging around the tree. I said, what in the world is he doing? And he never, he never even touched his car and he came back in. He said, I couldn't find it. It wasn't in my car. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh man, we got a little problem here, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we treated him and, you know, he, he got better and I, I lost contact with him. We probably treated him seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, for the last year, I was in public supermarket here. I got a pat on the shoulder. Turn around, and lo and behold, here was the guy. I recognized his face right away, and I, I didn't remember his name right off the bat. But when I turned around, he said, you're Dr. Zan, aren't you? I said, yeah, and I know who you are, too, but I can't remember. And, but tell me, he told me. I said, oh, yeah, I, I know all about that. Well, anyway, when he finished with hyperbaric, he was tremendous. He was a lot better. But, you know, he, you know what's, what's going to happen to this guy? So I looked at him. I said, hey, listen, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing great. And I said, have you, do you have a job? He said, I have the best job in the world. And without naming the organization, he is a federal law enforcement officer with one of the highest United States law enforcement agencies wow. in the country. I mean, when you think of the top law enforcement, this is it. And I said, hey, man, they let you have a gun again? He said, you bet, Doc. <laughs> He said, I'm at Eglin. I wear 30 pounds of battle rattle every day. That's what he called it. And I'm doing great. That's you know, amazing. And amazing. I've, I've run into other people like that. Uh, I can go public with this because General Maney has gone public with it. He's in the House State uh, Legislature. He was a county judge here for 30 years. He was blown up in, uh, I think, uh, Iraq. Uh, I went to Walter Reed, which is an Army hospital at that time in Washington. It was there for a long time, and his, I talked with his wife. She called you. They were we were friends, and he wasn't making a lot of progress. So finally, she asked about hyperbarics, and we talked about it. And she talked with the Army doctors at Walter Reed, and they called me one day and said, hey, what's going on with the hyperbarics and TBI and stuff like that? And I told them. And fortunately, they, they were able to send General May uh, off campus. They didn't have any chambers at Walter Reed, I think, at George Washington University or something like that. And they treated him. He came back home. We gave him a few more treatments. And shortly, he was back being a judge again, doing fine. And for a year, Carol, well, I won't mention her name. Anyway, she said that when Pat was at Walter Reed initially, you know, he, had, he couldn't watch TV. He had trouble reading the book. He'd go to the commissary, get lost, things like that. And the funny story was, Pat told me this. Uh, I hope I got it right. He went to the, the, he snuck out one day, went to the gas station there somewhere. It was a military you know, run thing. And he got there and he got the, the gas nozzle and you know what to do with it. And the lady on the other side of it does a double uh, tank thing, whatever. And he said, ma'am, can you show me what to do? <laughs> she looked at him and said, you're a general and you don't know how to pump gas. Oh, so, uh... But anyway, Pat's, uh, and he's in the state legislature now. He's a general, retired. But he's very active in this and has been a tremendous asset in trying to f- find funding for all our veterans. And, and he will continue to do so, Senator Wright and everyone else, too, Major Haynes. So it's just a great bunch of people. It's coming around, uh, and hopefully we can get more funding for more veterans. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, 
a not very well-known therapy that's helping many veterans get their lives back. And that is just amazing. So we certainly wish you the best and hope that this awareness will continue to grow and maybe one day it will be covered by insurance. Okay, let me ask you this now. I, will you put, uh, we have a website. Can mm-hmm. you put that on there where they can go to? Absolutely. And there's a testimonial tab and there a bunch, a lot <laughs> of testimonials from my veterans about you know, their results from uh, the hyperbarics for their TBI, PTSD. Um, there, there are a few uh, testimonials. We're treating COVID long haulers. Those are the people that are out of quarantine that are still sick months and months afterwards. So those first five or six testimonials are COVID long haulers, mm-hmm. and the rest of them, most of them are military people. Okay, yeah. we will absolutely put a link um, with this podcast. Um, and it's a wonderful um, website, too, that you guys have. Um, so in ending this interview, we want to ask you a couple of your favorite things, if you don't uh, mind. Okay. <laughs> the, first, fun. the first... Question we have is: What is your favorite decade? Favorite, probably the fifties in high school. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've had a good life. I'm, I'm not complaining at all. I have a good marriage. I've been married fifty eight years and all like that. But you know, the, the, all the stress. There's a lot of stress going on. I don't think we had that. I don't. If we did, I didn't appreciate it in the fifties in mm-hmm. college. I met my wife in college and got married. So, but I, the fifties were were good. I graduated from high school. I'm an old guy. <laughs> in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And it, it was just a good time, you know. It was yeah. just, and people were friendly. Uh, we didn't have all this controversy that we're having to deal with today, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have a favorite pet? Uh, I don't have a pet right now. Uh, I'm working out on that with my wife. <laughs> but a dog, my favorite pets are dogs. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a cat guy because a cat's smarter than me. So... <laughs> I find it. I don't want to have a pet that can outsmart me. You know. Fair enough. What is your favorite type of food? Uh, Can I say where I go? My favorite food. Please do. Chick Fil A. (laughs) (laughs) They are so good. My wife. My wife's a retired school teacher. She taught school thirty years, and we eat out a lot. She could cook, but we eat there quite often. But. Um, other than that, you know, I grew up in the South. Anything that's fried is, I like it, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. And so your last question is what's your favorite place to visit? Uh, I'm a mountain guy. We, my wife and I, you know, I mentioned I went to the Y camp as a kid up in the mountains of Northeast Georgia. Mm-hmm. I've lived here in Fort Lauderdale Beach for 48 years and have been to the beach one time. And that was because our guests made us go. Oh, my goodness. Um, we live on a bayou. I mean, I look at the water. The water is beautiful and all like that. But mm-hmm. every summer, we'll take a week to and go to the mountains of northeast Georgia, around Clayton, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, not too far from the Adams Wire Camp. And uh, we're headed up that way this summer for 10 days. So mm-hmm. we're both mountain people. Oh, well, I hope you guys have a wonderful time. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. And Dr. Zant, thank you so much for for talking with us today about this amazing uh, treatment. And I'm very excited to get this information out to the EOD community. So just brace yourself. You might you might be getting a lot of calls. Well, you know, we treated one EOD uh, person. I think he gave us a little plaque here. And I said that he thanked us for being able to resume his career because of his TBI and all. He he just could not function as an EOD 
specialist. And once we treated him and um, he recovered, he, he went back doing his EOD stuff. So, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit something for everybody. And uh, it's... Um, it's very rewarding, yeah. Well, and one thing I'd like to share, too, with the listeners is when I came out to your um, office in Destin to, to visit and see the chambers myself, um, which was very interesting, the first thing I saw in your in your lobby was a plaque of an EOD badge um, on the wall. So I, I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the one, that's the one that he gave us, Dad. Mm-hmm. He was a great patient. And I, when, when he left Eglin, I, I, I lost track of him, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure he's doing well. I sure, certainly hope so. He's a great, great patient, yeah. I'm sure he is, too. So so thank you again, Dr. Zant. We wish you the very best um, and are happy to have you helping our community. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.